Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, everybody. This is Prof. CJ, your one-man revolution and guerrilla scholar warrior, coming to you with yet another dose of dangerous history, yet another double-barreled buckshot blast of truthiness. This is episode 71 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and this one is about a fascinating Native American people, not well known to most people today, that were known as the Calusa. Their name literally means fierce people. They were fierce, strong, warlike people who lived in southwestern Florida. And at least to me, they're one of the most intriguing native peoples of the Western Hemisphere that I'm familiar with anyway. We know relatively little about these people, despite the fact that they were one of the earliest mainland North American tribes that Europeans encountered. In fact, they were the people who killed the Spanish explorer-conquistador Ponce de Leon, who is often given credit for quote-unquote discovering Florida. They were pretty badass, and there's a lot of interesting things about them and how they lived. The scarcity of information on these people is in part because of their fierce resistance to European incursions, and in part due to the fact that By about the mid to late 18th century, they were basically extinct as a people in a society. What we know about them comes from a combination of Spanish sources written by those who encountered and dealt with them, often in a very adversarial fashion, and also physical archaeological evidence that's been discovered over the years. There's probably much about the Calusa that we'll just never know about them, and probably at least some of what we believe about them is mistaken, I I would imagine. But we can still put together a decent picture of who they were and how they lived from what we do have. One of the most interesting things about them is that they're one of the relatively few people, at least that I know of in history, who, without really having agriculture developed a dense, sedentary, complex society that is comparable to 
what people developed who did engage in large-scale farming of staple crops. In other words, you look at similar-sized uh, tribes of people who do have conventional agriculture, as we would think of it, and the Calusa are right up there in terms of their overall complexity, both for good and for bad. So in this episode, we're going to look at these fascinating people. And as always with the Dangerous History Podcast, we'll look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, I just want to mention a little bit on where Florida's original inhabitants, those who lived in the place we now call Florida prior to the coming of the Europeans, primarily Spanish and a little bit of French and others, who were they and, and how did kind of the Calusa get where they were when the Spanish showed up? Well, Paleo-Indians, sort of Stone Age Indians, entered Florida approximately 10,000 BC. And at that time, low sea levels, you know, had exposed the Bering Strait land bridge, which is where these people were generally believed to have originally come from in the first place. That same low sea level situation that turned the Bering Strait into a land bridge also made Florida about twice as big as it is presently. If you ever look at the geographical or geological history of Florida, you'll find that over the millennia and, and over you know millions of years, ultimately, it has been both much larger and much smaller than it is today. Somebody once said something like, geologically speaking, Florida is nothing but a really big sandbar. And that's essentially correct. There have been periods in history where it's been entirely underwater. There have been periods in, in its history where it's been much larger than it is now, you know, with lower sea levels and everywhere in between. So when the earliest human beings to reach Florida uh, showed up around 10,000 BC, it was a bigger piece of land, and the climate was also cooler and drier than Florida is today. When people first showed up in Florida, things like mammoth, mastodon, wild horse, bison, giant tortoise, ground sloth, dire wolf spectacled boar, saber-toothed tiger, these were all species that were present in Florida when those so-called Paleo-Indians showed up. And these soon went extinct, partially, but not entirely due to human predation, probably a combination of human predation and, you know, climate changes. Now, the Paleo-Indians throughout Florida were basically just good old-fashioned hunter-gatherers. But about 5,000 B.C., Natives began to form more into villages that were semi-permanent or permanent, including in southwest Florida, what eventually became the land of the Calusa. Around 1000 BC, most Florida natives began to use more agriculture for food. The Calusa and a few other tribes, mostly in the southern part of Florida and a few other coastal areas, were exceptions to this. The Calusa and a few other tribes used virtually no or, or very little agriculture. In general, the inhabitants of North and Central Florida relied on agriculture supplemented with hunting and gathering for a significant portion of their food production. Those in South Florida, and also I think in a few places in the coastal bays of the Panhandle, had little or no agriculture and were able to rely on hunting and especially fishing to provide most or all of their food, perhaps supplemented with a bit of gathering of various types of produce. In the rich estuary environment of southwestern Florida, where the Everglades empty into the sea, the Calusa were able to develop a larger, more complex society than any other people in southern Florida. And they were the largest, most complex Indian society in Florida that, that had, you know, basically no agriculture. Now, again, the Calusa are one of the relatively few examples of people who developed a society 
with little or no agriculture, but which was nonetheless sedentary and a fairly high-density society, and which developed a lot of the complexity and hierarchy that agricultural societies usually produce. The only other examples of such people, you know, like that, who are able to develop a dense sedentary society without agriculture that I'm familiar with are also people like the Calusa who lived in an area where there is a very richly productive estuary environment. Uh, for example, I think some of the native peoples of the Pacific Northwest fell into this category as well. These estuary river mouth environments in the Pacific Northwest where there's just enormous amounts of salmon and other seafood and that sort of thing. Um, but I'll say I've not studied those peoples enough about them to know whether they developed a society that was as large, complex, dense, and hierarchical as that of the Calusa. The Calusa have an interesting physical description. In general, hunter-gatherers tend to, and there's a lot of forensic evidence to back this up, hunter-gatherers tend to be larger, you know, taller, stronger, healthier, hardier people than those from agricultural societies. They tend to have a lot less of many diseases that we think of as just endemic to the human condition. Lots of archaeological evidence shows that when people go from a hunter-gatherer-type lifestyle to a sedentary agricultural society, they tend to get smaller in stature, they're not as strong, they start to develop more diseases, heart disease, and many other things that you find very little evidence of among hunter-gatherers suddenly becomes endemic amongst agricultural people. And the Calusa, though they were sedentary, apparently still had this physique and hardiness of hunter-gatherers because of how they got their food and what their food was. So, for example, sources say that Calusa men were almost always well over six feet tall. By contrast, most of the European men during the time period when the Spanish first started exploring Florida were well under 5'6". I think the average height of European men at the time was, was actually something like 5'4". These Calusa literally towered over them, almost a foot taller on average. And they're described as being, you know, these very hardy, muscular types. Their society was a rather complex hierarchical one, definitely in that gray area between just a pure tribal society and what we would think of as a state. It definitely had some state-ish elements, though I wouldn't call it a full-fledged state. Not only did the Calusa themselves have a rather large society by the standards of native tribes in those parts of North America, but they also exercised a degree of influence, sometimes dominant, sometimes a bit less than that. What I would maybe sum up as suzerainty, which, if you're not familiar with that term, it's spelled S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N-T-Y. Suzerainty is something less than sovereignty. Suzerainty is just like significant influence that a powerful people might exercise over less powerful ones. They might pay you tribute, they might you know, pledge themselves to, to be um, allies, but in sort of a, an inferior, submissive kind of a, a way, suzerainty. So um, I would say that the Calusa exercised a form of su suzerainty over many other peoples throughout southern Florida. The tribes of southeastern Florida, for example, who seem to have been rather similar to the Calusa in lifestyle and in culture, and, you know, were another people that got more of their food from hunting, gathering, fishing than from agriculture. Tribes like the Tequesta, for example, roughly around present-day Miami, 
those sorts of tribes were tribes that paid regular tribute to the Calusa, who were more numerous and powerful. Now, like I said, very complex hierarchical society, so definitely doesn't have the egalitarianism and the, um, you know, almost quasi-anarchism of most genuine hunter-gatherer kind of nomadic societies. Nobles and warriors were exempt from work and had access to types of foods that were actually denied to the commoners, to everyone else. There were nobles who acted as local chiefs, like of a particular town or village, and then there was the overall head chief or king above them all. Of course, maybe not surprisingly, this top chief or king claimed that he was the go-between with the supernatural realm, so the people believing this and believing, as do most people in that state of development, that everything that happens, good or bad, has a supernatural origin. The people believed this and came to equate what was good for the chief with what was good for themselves, and this, of course, is where much of his power came from. Now, in addition to himself, the king had two kind of right-hand assistant chiefs, one who was basically what you might think of as the secretary of war, and another who was what you might think of as, like, the, um, you know, the pope, the archbishop of Canterbury, or whatever, the top religious guy. So you have the overall chief, and then you've got, just below him, a, a, a war assistant chief and a religion assistant chief. At the time that the Spanish made contact with these people, the head chief happened to be called Calus, and this was also the name of the chief's town, and so as a result, the Spanish started most of the time referring to these people as the Calusa, although I think they actually had a different name for themselves in their own language. And the Spanish Europeanized the chief's name Calus into Carlos, and so you often find Spanish sources talking about King Carlos or Chief Carlos or Cacique Carlos, Cacique being, I believe, the uh, Spanish word for chief. And this practice of kind of referring to a, a native chief by a European name seems kind of demeaning to me. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to actually have to learn how to pronounce your weird name. I'll just kind of come up with a name that I'm already used to, and I'll call you by that, which which to me always seems kind of insulting. Like, if I come up and introduce myself, and I've got kind of an unusual or exotic name to your ears, and you, you say, well, I, I don't want to call you that. You know, I'm I'm just going to call you some bland thing that's more familiar to me. I would say, like, well, who the hell are you to tell me what my name is? But this was a common thing, and it wasn't just the Spanish who did this sometimes. You find the English doing it and so on. So, for example, in uh, New England, up in the Massachusetts area, there was a Wampanoag Indian chief that the English just called King Philip, and his real name was actually Metacomet. There's a war, an interesting war that's not as well known as it should be, pretty nasty war between the Massachusetts settlers and the Wampanoag Indians that occurred at, towards the very end of the 17th century, and it's just referred to historically as King Philip's War. By the way, in that war, the Puritan Massachusetts settlers, I believe at the end of the war, chopped off King Philip's head and stuck it on a spike outside of uh, Boston or one of the big towns for a year, something like that. So, yeah, very much bringing civilization to the barbarians, showing them the proper way to, in a civilized fashion, sever one's head and put it on display for a long period of time outside. After all, how else can you bring them the good word of the Prince of Peace? Well, anyway, a lot of the information we have about their society comes from Spanish observers, from the conquistadors and soldiers and missionaries who interacted with them. And, of course, these are not always people who are um, 
favorably disposed to the Calusa to begin with, and you always have to wonder how much they are accurately stating what they witnessed and how much they are accurately interpreting what it is that they saw and heard and, and so forth. So, for example, Spanish sources say that the king of the tribe was supposed to marry his sister as one of his wives. But some historians today believe that that was actually a misunderstanding on the part of Europeans and that the chief was simply supposed to marry a wife from his own clan group. Although chiefs also had many wives, they would have women from each of the Calusa villages as their wives, and they would also have a woman from each of their subject tribes that paid tribute to them. They had some very interesting religious beliefs that are different from a lot of typical Native American beliefs. They believe that each person has three souls, one contained in the pupil of the eye, another contained in one shadow, and the third in the image you see of yourself when you look at your reflection in the water. And they believe that upon death, two of those souls would leave your body, but one stayed with the body, and so they actually had cemeteries that they would sometimes visit where they thought that one of the person's souls was still in the body. Now, the two souls that departed your body would go into animals, and as each animal died, they believed, the soul would go into a smaller animal and a smaller animal and so on, until eventually it would be reduced to nothingness, I guess, after your soul worked its way down to a flea or something. Calusa rituals apparently also included some degree of human sacrifice. Now, from what I've found in my research, it doesn't seem like this was nearly as regular or big of a thing among them as it was among, say, the Mayans or the Aztecs. But we have sources that indicate that it did happen at least sometimes. Unfortunately, most of the information we have on their religious practices comes from Spanish monks and friars who you know, may not have always been the most fair and objective sources on the beliefs and practices of the Calusa. So understand that this is all just based on the best evidence we have. It may have some things that are not quite accurate to what the Calusa actually did or believed. The Calusa never converted to Catholicism, as did so many other native peoples with whom the Spanish interacted and who, in many cases, they conquered. Part of the reason may have been that the elite of the Calusa, their power was so much tied into the religious beliefs of the people. And they apparently did such a great job of getting their people to believe these things that the people were very defensive of keeping their religion and thus in so doing, keeping the authority of the king. Darcy A. McMahon and William H. Marquardt in their book, The Calusa and Their Legacy, South Florida People and Their Environments, say this, quote, The spiritual and the material realms made up one seamless world for South Florida native people. According to the documents, common people believed in the absolute power of the Calusa leader. His power was a function of, and proof of, his identification with both the practical and the spiritual features of their everyday world. As their leader prospered, the land and the waters would continue to bring forth their abundance. His struggles, his wars and alliances, and his dealings with the spirits of the dead were in the interest of all, and whatever he required of them had to be given without question. Spiritual authority and political authority, easily discussed separately in our society, were for the Calusa one and the same. To separate the Calusa leader from the spiritual world was to destroy him as an authority figure and deny him his reason for existence. 
political authority and spiritual knowledge went hand in hand, as revealed in this observation by Jesuit missionary Juan Rogel, who here refers to the Sikike or paramount leader as the king. And now McMahon and Marquardt quote this document from Juan Rogel. It is expedient for him to show to his vassals and to his neighboring kings that he is the legitimate king of this kingdom, and because to that end, during his childhood, they taught and instructed him in all the things that it is expedient for the king to know about the cult and veneration of the idols. If he were suddenly to forsake the idolatry at the beginning of his reign, the aforementioned kings and vassals would say that he was not a legitimate king, as he did not know what kings are obliged to know. End quote. So there you go. This is part of the reason why the Calusa so vigorously resisted any Spanish attempts to try and convert them to Christianity, to Catholicism. And I think that quote I shared with you from McMahon and Marquardt and also from Juan Rogel, these are great descriptions of the fusion of religion and politics, a great illustration of how rulers use propaganda and the alliance of throne and altar in order to activate the Stockholm syndrome within the brains of their subjects, in order to get the captives, the people who are being exploited by the king and the nobles, to identify with and actively root for their captors and exploiters. I want to talk a little bit about the environment in which the Calusa lived and the ways that they got their food, because this is, to me, some of the most interesting stuff about them and is also crucial to understanding the people themselves. Now, where the Calusa lived, their heartland was really coastal southwest Florida from about present-day Charlotte Harbor to Cape Sable, including the 10,000 Islands area and what today is Marco Island, Sanibel, Naples, and so on. A lot of well-known, beautiful beach places in Florida. They also may at times have had a presence in the Florida Keys, and furthermore, like I said, they also have a lot of power and influence over other tribes in the region, such as those along the southeastern coast of Florida and those around the Lake Okeechobee area. Uh, these other tribes had very similar cultures and lifestyles, but again, tended to be smaller and less powerful, so they seem to have been basically vassals to the Calusa. Now, if you're not familiar with Southwest Florida, this is the place where the Everglades meets the sea. Huge amount of fresh water comes from Lake Okeechobee and some major Florida rivers, empties via the so-called River of Grass, the Everglades, which really is just like a really shallow, super wide, super slow moving river through the Everglades and into the sea. This is a gigantic estuary environment it's got all kinds of plant and wildlife in huge abundance. It's got mangrove forests everywhere. It's a nursery for various types of sea life, just a cornucopia of wildlife. Places where salt and freshwater meet on a huge scale tend to always be extremely productive fisheries, at least until people come in and fuck it up in some way. And the Calusa certainly had negative things about them, but they didn't fuck up their environment too much, at least. Many species flourish in the variable mixed brackish waters. There are some freshwater fish that can tolerate some salt and vice versa, and some fish that are totally fine in anything from completely salt to completely freshwater. And many saltwater species prefer to spawn in shallow brackish estuaries. So, again, this usually means that big estuaries have massive amounts of fish, shellfish, and other delicious wildlife. And this area of southwest Florida is one of the biggest estuaries that I know of in North America. 
This region is still today a vast productive estuary. However, keep in mind, what there is of the Everglades today is only a shadow, is only just a leftover hint of what it was in the Calusa's heyday in terms of size of, of the actual environment and productivity in terms of plants and animals. The Everglades has been severely damaged ever since Team America, quote-unquote, induced Florida to join the team. And most of the blame for the damage to the Everglades and the lakes and the rivers that feed it is actually due to state and federal government. Yes, it, it's definitely true that private special interests, such as developers and also various big agricultural interests, such as, for example, the um, so-called and much rightfully maligned sugar barons, these multi-million dollar welfare queens that live in many ways off state largesse and state uh, protectionism. A lot of private special interests have profited handsomely from messing with the Everglades ecosystem. However, most of the real damage to it was done by government because only government could command all of the manpower and resources necessary for such a huge project as you know, draining big chunks of the Everglades and, and straightening a lot of the rivers. These are huge infrastructure pro uh, projects done mostly by the Army Corps of Engineers in the 20th century. And very few private business entities could even muster the resources necessary for that. And the few who could, it wouldn't be profitable to do it. If you're a private company trying to make a profit, you, you would spend so much money trying to do these projects that it, it, there's no way it would be worth it. But if you're a private company and you want to do something in the Everglades area that will require draining part of it or whatever, if you can get the state you know, whether it's the state of Florida or whether it's the federal government or both, if you can get them to do the work for you, if you can get them to come in and drain the swamp and straighten the rivers and, you know, ruin all that so that it'll be better for growing sugar or whatever it is you want to do, you can socialize that cost onto the taxpayers at large. And then you can come in there and scoop up the benefits of having this, whatever it is, you know, newly exposed sugar growing land or whatever. Well, anyway, I'll try not to get sidetracked too much on that. Uh, this time, maybe that's something I'll cover in the future. I don't know. But it's an interesting story, and it's amazing how often, when you look at the real large-scale environmental destruction, yes, it's true that there are, there are private business interests that will profit from it. Yes, it's true that they're behind kind of lobbying for some of these things to be done. But at the end of the day, so much of the destruction of the environment wouldn't be possible on the scale that it has been done without some degree of state involvement, without the ability of the oligarchs to socialize a lot of the costs of these huge projects onto the taxpayer. Well, again, some of these are still highly productive estuaries today, but in the days of the Calusa, it would have been a richness that we can only imagine in terms of fish and wildlife and just, you know, beautiful, pristine, clear blue-green waters and endless grass flats and so on. There's an historian named Jack E. Davis, who is a top historian of Florida's environmental history. And if you don't know what environmental history is, it's pretty simple. It's just looking at how people and their sort of natural habitat interact over time. Jack Davis has a chapter on some of Florida's environmental history in a big book entitled The History of Florida, edited by Michael Gannon. And in his chapter, Jack E. Davis writes this about the Calusa and their environment. Quote, what bound the Calusa to a single place was water. That flowing through and around South Florida brimmed with a natural bounty. 
hunter-gatherer societies on other parts of the continent suffered food shortages and starvation in winter months, an uncertain time for the weak and elderly. Not the Calusa. The coastal estuaries, now called Charlotte Harbor, Pine Island Sound, and the Stero Bay, and the inner waterways, the modern Peace, Mayaka, and Caloosahatchee Rivers, were a constant source of protein. It was self-generating, perpetual, no cultivation required. Although they supported the densest population in South Florida, the Calusa had no need for agriculture. Big fish, little fish, shrimp, sea turtles, crabs, lobsters, manatees, and even sharks, whales, and the West Indian seal were easily gathered with spear, net, or quick hand. Bird meat, venison, and wild plant food, such as saw palmettos, coca plums, sea grapes, coontie roots, contributed slightly to the local diet. Marine habitat supplied more than, more than 90%. When Adelantado Pedro Menendez de Avila dined with the Calusa six months after founding St. Augustine, his host presented a feast of fish and oysters, the latter served boiled, roasted, and raw. The honorary spread included no plant foods. End quote. Evidence indicates that the majority of Calusa food of their diet came from large numbers of smaller items, such as little, littler fish like pinfish, various types of small saltwater catfish, mullet, grunts, and that large fish, sharks, rays, mollusks, crustaceans, birds, and turtles supplemented that. And again, we're told from sources that commoners were denied uh, certain types of foods that the king and nobles could have. Now, exactly what foods were and, and weren't allowed to commoners, I'm not sure. Archaeologists have tallied the physical evidence from Calusa sites and have found that the Calusa consumed over 50 different species of fish and over 20 different kinds of mollusks and crustaceans on a regular basis. There were some Calusa who lived a little bit more inland from the coast, and they seem to have gotten a higher percentage of their food from mammals such as deer. But the bulk of the Calusa that lived, you know, right in and amongst the estuaries, it was a very high seafood diet. It was the size and richness of this environment that caused the Calusa to flourish. Low-end population estimates are that they numbered over 10,000 prior to Spanish incursions, but some estimates are there may have been as many as 50,000 Calusa. Of course, we'll never know for sure, but understand, this would have been a population numbering in the tens of thousands. Now, aside from all the seafood, the Calusa also gathered various berries, fruits, nuts, roots, and so on to eat, and they relied on other plant sources for things like medicines, for fuel, and for materials to make stuff like buildings, tools, implements, works of art out of wood. They also made various powerful teas out of different plants as well. Simply put, with no real agriculture beyond maybe an occasional small garden, and we're told they sometimes had little, little household gardens where they would grow a few things like chili peppers and, and squashes and gourds, maybe papayas. Other than a little, a little garden, the Calusa really didn't have agriculture, and yet they were able to flourish in terms of population number. And as I said, the evidence is they were very you know large, strong, physically healthy people, and they were able to not be nomads. They were able to be uh, sedentary peoples simply because of the natural productivity, that bounty of their environment that we heard from Jack Davis about. They had ingenious methods of very efficiently harvesting that environment in terms of their hunting, fishing, and gathering practices. 
Now, again, not only did the plants and animals of their environment provide the Calusa with their sustenance, but those same things also furnished them with materials to make all kinds of things, including tools, weapons, implements, decorations, and so on. So I want to talk a little bit about their sort of physical culture, their, their buildings, tools, weapons, and so on. In general, what many other New World native peoples might have made out of stone, the Calusa would have made out of other materials such as shell and bone. Among other things, shells were used as dippers, spoons, bowls, clubs, hammers, shovels, and a bunch of other things. Most people know about the Plains Indians' use of virtually all parts of a bison, not just for food, but for tools and all sorts of other things as well. And the Calusa were similar in regard to the wildlife that was in their area. So to take just one example, sharks. Aside from the meat, the Calusa would also use most other parts of the shark for one thing or another as well. For example, they would use the teeth to make precision cutting and drilling tools and also to make different types of weapons. And they used shark liver oil to make body paint that was mosquito repellent, a very handy thing in that environment. And they used shark skin as sandpaper. And they would use other parts of other animals for tools and weapons and things as well. So, for example, when they went fishing for larger fish, they would often do it with a, with a harpoon, with a spear. And this might be made of, for example, an alligator or fish bone with a stingray spine for the point. Like I said before, though, most of the Calusa's nourishment came from lots of small fish rather than from a few big fish. This is a more efficient way of getting protein in the form of fish, is actually fishing for a bunch of little fish rather than, you know, fishing for fewer fish that are bigger. This is why survival books, you know, wilderness survival books and things like that, when they talk about fishing for survival, they're usually looking at things like netting minnows and, you know, making little fish traps and corrals and things for catching little minnows and bait fish to eat. Because if you're just trying to catch one big fish the way you might if you were sport fishing, you might spend all day and get nothing. And it'd be better to efficiently trap a bunch of little fish. And the Calusa were masters of this. Perhaps not surprisingly to them, nets were very important, and they were masters of net craft. They made various types of really effective nets using available materials from their environment, such as fibers from cabbage palm or saw palmetto, Spanish moss. And for larger nets, they would often rig them with floats on one end made out of gourds, and then weights on the other end made out of shells. And what this would do you know, basically what, what you're doing with a net like that is you're floating one half of it while sinking the other to the ground. And this creates a net that's in a vertical orientation. Very handy if you can then, you know, corral fish to swim towards your net and it's oriented up and down within the water column. They also made all kinds of fish traps out of wood and out of cordage as well. They built large shell mounds out of oyster shells, which, of course, they consumed in great quantity as food. And so they weren't just throwing those things. I think when when people first started discovering Indian oyster mounds in South Florida, they thought they were just sort of like trash heaps, like modern landfills. But in reality, what they were doing was taking the waste from their food, the shells from oysters and other shellfish, and using those to build up these mounds in an area where there's really not natural hills of any type. Very flat, very low to sea level environment. You know, a lot of this area where the Calusa lived is a couple feet above sea level at best. And they decided to use the the byproduct of their food consumption to build these artificial hills out of shells. Now, this provided all sorts of benefits. 
they apparently put a lot of thought into the location and construction and design of these huge shell mounds. And these shell mounds provided places of refuge during hurricanes, where not only do you have wind and rain and everything battering about, but you also have what's called storm surge, where the water levels can rise significantly. And if you're living in a village that's only a foot or two above sea level, and there's a storm surge that's many feet past that, you're in trouble. But if you have a shell mound that's, you know, 20 feet high or what have you, you might be okay. Not only did their shell mounds help provide refuge during storms, they also oriented the um, the mounds and also the buildings they might build on top of them in order to do things like catch the breeze properly, to provide cooling, and also to minimize the problems with mosquitoes and noceums, which in this region are just absolutely insane for much of the year. I mean, you, you go in the 10,000 Islands or the Florida Bay area near to where the Everglades empties out, and it you better have, especially if you're going to be staying overnight, you better have a heck of a lot of insect repellent and netting and so on. Now, for housing, they built large buildings, sometimes very large, often two stories high out of wood and palm thatch. When Pedro Menendez attended a Calusa feast, for example, he said it was in a building that held about 2,000 people. And a lot of these large houses were sort of communal housing for a whole group of people, like a whole extended family group or whatever. The Calusa fashion dug out canoes from pine and cypress. Some of these may have been over 15 feet long. They were experts at ocean travel in their area and ventured not just all up and down their coast and into the inland waterways, but out to sea at least as far away as Cuba and definitely had a lot of presence in and around the Florida Keys. The Calusa wore relatively minimalist clothing, not surprising given the heat and humidity of their environment for most of the year. They supposedly did not tattoo, or at least not very much, but they did like body paint. They often used body paint. And this had religious significance, I'm, I'm assuming they also thought it looked cool too. The body paint was often very dark color, like black, but it also provided some bug protection. They would make it out of things that they knew did a decent job of repelling mosquitoes and noceums. Higher-level society Calusa supposedly wore a fair amount of bling, pearls, various types of jewelry, etc. For example, the king had some gold items that he would wear, and of course gold is not easy to come by in this region. And this shows that the Calusa, like so many other Indian groups, were actually trading with people a further distance away than people used to think. You know, there were trade routes and trade networks that would have linked the Calusa to people far away who actually did have access to gold. Now, reflecting their high population density and sophistication and complexity, the Calusa produced a lot of intricate artwork, especially carvings of bone and shell and wood and so on. Some of it functional, but some of it just purely decorative. And again, this reflects a people who are pretty good at feeding themselves and are able to have the spare time, at least for some of them, to engage in this sort of activity. Now, what ended up happening to the Calusa? Well, many people have heard of Ponce de Leon and the supposed myth that he was looking for the Fountain of Youth and all that stuff. Not true, by the way. But he was the first Spanish explorer that was documented and on purpose was exploring what eventually became known as La Florida. His first voyage to explore Florida was in 1513, and he originally landed on the Atlantic coast of Florida partway up. Uh, people think their best guess today, based on the evidence, is somewhere around what today is Melbourne, 
on Florida's Atlantic coast. But then he explored around other parts of the coast as well and did eventually make it down around to where the Calusa lived. And this first expedition was forced to return back to Puerto Rico after getting into a battle with the Calusa in the Sanibel area. They were very, very hostile immediately towards the Spanish. In fact, most of the natives that Ponce de Leon encountered in Florida were pretty hostile right off the bat, but the Calusa were especially so, and they were pretty fierce fighters as well. Now, why was this the case? You know, a lot of times when the Spanish ran into a new native peoples, there would be this initial moment of kind of curiosity where the natives weren't sure who the hell these guys were or even what they were. In some cases, we know they even thought the Spanish were gods or something. It is very unusual for a native people to just off the bat be totally hostile right away. But what may have happened in Florida Part of it might have been that the Calusa were a fairly aggressive, warlike people that were just used to being the big dog in their neighborhood. And they seem to have correctly realized, perhaps earlier than some of the other New World natives, that the Spanish were coming to take over. But part of it, doubtless, also was that they knew about Spanish aggression. It's likely that some conquistadors before Ponce de Leon some who were sort of off-the-reservation renegade conquistadors, who came to Florida in order to do things like capture slaves prior to Ponce de Leon making the official expedition, that these pre-Ponce Spaniards coming to Florida may have fought and, and tried to capture and enslave Indians in Florida, and so they already knew who these guys were and what they were up to. Some sources also say that the native refugees from earlier Caribbean conquests on the part of the Spanish came to Florida, again, fleeing to there as refugees, prior to Ponce's expedition. And so they would have told the Calusa and other peoples they encountered in Florida, hey, there's these pale guys with all these weird weapons and things, and they mean business and look out for them. And so you put all this together, and the Calusa immediately saw the Spanish for what they were. So Ponce de Leon had to pull the plug on his first expedition to Florida because of the Calusa fighting him. And when he returned to Florida eight years later in 1521, he again returned to southwest Florida, we think somewhere around Charlotte Harbor. And there he once again got into a battle with the Calusa. And again, it went very badly for the Spanish. This illustrates something, by the way, that often gets overlooked, which is in the early phases of European incursions into the New World, they were often at a huge disadvantage. And in a lot of cases, if the natives would have just, you know, exerted maximum resistance right away, they might have successfully kicked the Europeans out, at least for the time being. But usually what happens is they're able to get a foot in the door, in part in many cases because the Indians are not sure who these guys are and what they're up to, and also in part because the Spanish sometimes are able to, especially if they're fighting against the people who are not that great of warriors, they're able to make their superior weapons technology, you know, hold out and, and, and win the day. But what usually ends up happening is once the Europeans are in an area for a little while, then the germs go to work. And that's what really does much of the, the heavy work of conquering these people, is not even the swords and guns, but the germs. Well, anyway, getting back to Ponce's second expedition to Florida, 1521, he gets into this battle with the Calusa Indians. During this battle, he gets wounded in the thigh by a Calusa arrow. The Calusa warriors were supposedly great archers, and they would make arrows, again, oftentimes out of things found in their environment, animal parts, and so on. Not only that, they also were masters of poisons and things, and so they would often have poison arrows. And that's exactly what got Ponce de Leon. Poison arrow wounds him in the thigh. He makes it 
uh, out. They go, I think, back to Cuba, and there he dies of his wound because of the poison. So Ponce de Leon, the famous discoverer, quote-unquote, of Florida, gets killed by these people I'm talking about. The Calusa were pretty badass. Now, a generation or two later, Ponce de Leon is the guy who made the initial claim of Florida for Spain, but the guy who really made Spain own Florida was a generation or two later, his name was Pedro Menendez. This is the guy who founded St. Augustine in 1565, which became the first permanent Spanish settlement in Florida. Well, one year after founding St. Augustine, and also he, he fought off a French Huguenot settlement that was being set up a bit north of that up by Jacksonville. After doing that, Menendez continued to explore around Florida again. He visited the Calusa in 1566, and it was there that the chief, which the Spanish called Carlos, threw him this big party I mentioned before, this big feast at, at a giant hall that could supposedly hold 2,000 people. And also there, Chief Carlos offered one of his sisters for Pedro Menendez to marry, which Menendez did, and she ended up being one of the very few Calusa Indians to ever be baptized. But despite the fact that it looked like there was this alliance going on, the Calusa chief and Pedro Menendez didn't take long until they had fallings out and their men had fallings out with each other. In other words, the alliance was more nominal. It never really ran deep and it didn't last for very long. When Menendez left the Calusa to go check out other parts of Florida, he left behind a small number of soldiers and a group of Jesuit missionaries. And the soldiers in particular seemed to have caused more of the trouble at least that's what the Jesuits said. The Jesuits blamed them for basically souring any possibility of getting some conversions going, for poisoning the well on that. Because supposedly, the soldiers were constantly trying to seize food and other goods from the Calusa. And eventually, they even killed the chief, Carlos, as well as several other no nobles. And when Carlos's successor took over, whom the Spanish called Felipe, they ended up killing him too. Well, not surprisingly, things deteriorated from there into intermittent war. The Jesuits left the area. The Spanish soldiers who were in the area had to get out of there. And there was intermittent war for about a century. It was not quite as bloody as it could have been simply because most Spanish settlements were pretty far away from where the Calusa were. But it was just sort of like never-ending low-scale intermittent war. When the Jesuits left the area, no other Catholic missionaries made further attempts to convert the Calusa for over a century until in the 1690s, by that time, the Franciscans had largely taken over Spanish missions in Florida. The Jesuits had kind of given up on it. The Franciscans moved in, and they had success in a few places, but not down in the southwest of Florida. Their mission to convert the Calusa ended within just a few months. The Calusa apparently got pissed at them, got tired of them. And so what the Calusa did was they took the Franciscan friars that were there, they stripped them of all their clothing, and they took them to what was then a very remote place called Matacumbe Key. And they just dropped them off there, buck naked. And eventually these friars were rescued by the Spanish ship, uh, by, by a Spanish ship that came by. But that was it as far as, you know, continuing Spanish efforts to try and convert these people. Just wasn't, they weren't having it. Now, continuous war and enslavement certainly contributed to the decline of the Calusa from then on. Uh, for example, some other Indians who were allied with the Spanish would raid the Calusa and other Florida Indian tribes in order to capture some of them as slaves in the early 18th century. But 
as with so many other New World native peoples, it was germs, especially smallpox and measles, that were by far the number one killer, by, by far, by a huge margin. The people of the Western Hemisphere had no exposure to Eurasian diseases prior to Columbus and those who came after him. So they were just extremely vulnerable to all these diseases, many of which many Europeans had long since built up at least some immunity to. And for more on how and why this worked out this way, good book to check out is Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Jack Davis writes that primarily due to microbes, quote, by the time the Spanish surrendered Florida to the British in 1763, the Calusa were a people of the past, end quote. A few original Florida natives left for Cuba with the Spanish when the Spanish left in 1763, but most of them died of illness on the way. There are claims by some, not well, doc- not well documented as far as I know, that a few remnant Calusa may have mixed in with the Seminole when the Seminole arrived in Florida much later when the Calusa were already virtually wiped out. And check out Dangerous History Podcast episode 23 for more info on who the Seminole were and where they came from. They were not an original native tribe of Florida. There was no such thing as Seminoles when the Spanish first started making incursions into Florida. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up with just some some lessons, observations, things like that, that I think I at least take away from looking at the Calusa Indians. I think you've got to respect their ingenuity in adapting to their environment. It is an environment that is incredibly rich, especially back then in terms of its productivity of, of wildlife and plants, but it's also an environment that's very harsh. It's an environment that has massive storms regularly for much of the year. It's an environment that has really high heat and humidity levels for much of the year. It's a place that for much of the year has crazy bug issues. I mean, the mangroves of the coastal Everglades and the 10,000 Islands are notorious for having vicious swarms of mosquitoes and noceums for much of the year. I think that anyone today who's into anything along the lines of like the paleo diet and lifestyle or into the self-sufficiency and preparedness world, anyone along those lines can probably learn a thing or two from studying the Calusa. They knew how to efficiently harvest a lot of nutrition from their environment, enough to give them a dense population that was physically larger and stronger man for man than were the Spaniards. I think you've also got to respect the Calusa's dogged resistance to Spanish incursions for so many years. For literally a couple hundred years, they successfully resisted the Spanish taking them over and converting them to to the Catholic faith. But I think that respect has to be tempered, at least in my mind, by the realization that the Calusa were resisting takeover and exploitation by an outside people, the Spanish, in order to defend their status quo. And their status quo involved most of them being dominated and exploited by their own homegrown elites. In other words, when they fought against the Spanish, they may have been fighting for freedom from Spanish rule, but they were not fighting for freedom in the grand sense of the word freedom. The Galus are a great example of the pluses of a non-agricultural civilization in terms of health and nutrition and all this sort of thing. But they still produce something of a proto-state and a lot of hierarchy. Their settled, dense population ended up being much more um, hierarchical, oligarchical, you might even say, than did some of the tribes elsewhere in the Americas who were more nomadic or semi-nomadic hunter-gatherers. The Calusa show that 
even though they were not a quote-unquote state per se in the modern sense of a nation-state that we would recognize, they still did have elites. They still did have people who could exploit, kill, and dominate those who were not part of the elite. Interesting question. What's the magic secret ingredient that caused the Calusa to develop kind of a state-ish tribal hierarchy that more closely resembles what we would imagine from an agricultural people than it does the tribal society of nomadic hunter-gatherers. I'm not exactly sure, but my guess is it's a combination of being sedentary and having high population density. That's what I think caused the Calusa to develop a tribal system that was more like a state than some of the more nomadic, more scattered hunter-gatherer tribes in some other areas of the Americas. Being sedentary and having high population density. And it's a mixed bag because this does tend to produce material wealth, but it also produces, for those who are not part of the elite, a lot of exploitation. The Calusa, these fierce warriors, are one of many examples that illustrate how not all native peoples fit the stereotype of sort of peaceful hippies communing with nature. The Calusa were not as bloodthirsty as someone like the Aztecs or the Mayans, but they still engaged in war, they still engaged in conquest, and from what we can tell, they still engaged at least occasionally in human sacrifice, which, you know, is pretty typical of any society at that kind of stage of development. They were one of the most successful tribes when it came to resisting Spanish religious and political takeover, but again, they still did suffer from the same Achilles heel of all New World peoples, which was susceptibility to Eurasian disease. So perhaps that illustrates how sometimes, at a certain point, there are things that you can't quite protect against in a given situation. And while I don't think we should dwell on that, um, perhaps you know we should acknowledge that sometimes that is the case. Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope you found the Calusa as fascinating as I do. I hope you found this episode interesting and also entertaining. Remember, you can post comments on my website if they're related to this episode. The website is profcj.org. That's P-R-O-F-C-J dot O-R-G. And you can email me with questions or comments related to just about anything. My email address is profcj at profcj.org. Remember, there's lots of ways you can follow my show and what I'm doing. You can email subscribe to my site. Along the right-hand side, there's a place to put in your email address and subscribe. And if you do that, I'm not going to send you any junk or spam or anything like that. All that'll happen is you'll get an email every time there's something new posted to my site. Typically, it's a new podcast episode. Occasionally, it's some other sort of announcement or what have you. You can also follow my show and what I'm doing on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. If you enjoy this show, if it's, if it's worth something to you, um, you appreciate it, want to see it keep going and improving, there's lots of things you can do to help out. One, of course, is to spread the word in different ways. Uh, some of you have been posting things on different you know, discussion boards and things, and that's been really cool. I appreciate it. Also, leaving reviews or ratings in venues like iTunes or Stitcher is helpful. And of course, I would very much appreciate financial support in any way you can. And exciting announcement, and I did a post about this the other day, but I just want to mention again, there's now a great, convenient, cool way for you to help support the work I do here at the Dangerous History Podcast on a per-episode basis via Patreon. 
Patreon is a real cool thing. I think it's only been around for just several months or so. I only found out about it within the past few weeks or month or something. Patreon is a place where people can pledge to be patrons for various creators and pledge to donate a set amount of money per whatever. So in the case of a podcast, you would sign in, sign up to pledge a little donation per podcast episode that I do. So it's really neat. I just finished setting it up a few days ago. I'm hoping a lot of you will take advantage of this as a way to show your appreciation and help me out with the work I'm doing here. So get on over to patreon.com slash profcj. There's a link to it now on my donate page. Um, I'll probably also put a link to it in the show notes for this episode as well. It's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j. You can choose your donation amount per episode. You can also set monthly maximums if you want. That way, if I do more episodes in a given month than usual, you don't you know, get, get surprised with a bigger bill than you're used to. So please help keep the Dangerous History podcast going and growing. This is a great way to do so. By the way, shout out big thanks to Tim for being my very first patron on Patreon since I set up my Patreon page a few uh, days ago. Tim, you're awesome appreciate it very much. I hope more of you listening will find your way over to patreon.com slash profcj to help me out. Also, go to profcj.org slash donate for other ways you can help out the show financially besides just Patreon. Of course, there's always PayPal if you prefer. That's great. You can send me a one-time lump sum donation, or you can, through PayPal, put in for recurring monthly donations as well. I'll also happily accept Bitcoin donations to the address on my donate page. And also remember, another way you can help me out is to buy stuff from Amazon.com by first going through any of my Amazon affiliate links on my website. So thanks very much, everybody, for your help and support in the show. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.